Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. On our program this time, it is the time of year when inspectors general across the federal community lay out what they see as the top management challenges for the agencies they oversee. In the Defense Department's case, the top 10 challenges for 2020 are pretty familiar. Things like shoring up financial management, countering challenges from Russia, China, and global terrorist networks, and defending DOD networks from cyber threats. But there are two new entries on the DOD IG's list this year. One deals with taking care of service members and their families. The other, securing and better managing the military supply chain. We're going to focus on those two new additions to the top 10 on this week's show. Later on in the program, Courtney Phones, the DODIG's program director for audit, will help us dig into the supply chain issues. First, though, Brett Mansfield, senior advisor to the inspector general, is with us. Mr. Mansfield, let me start with you, and we'll talk about um, some of the family issues you guys identify in the uh, family and, and, and service member issues you identify in this year's management challenges report. It's you know, for lack of a better word, what I would call a people section. And, and there's a lot of things under the heading of people that you could have chosen. So so maybe you can start us off by talking a little bit about how you selected the particular issues that you did for this section, which you call ensuring the welfare and, and well-being of service members and families. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to first kind of step back, though, if I can, and just give you kind of an overlay of what the management challenges are and uh, where, where the premise for this document comes from. So the Reports Consolidation Act of uh, 2000 requires all inspectors general within the federal government to produce uh, an annual report on the uh, most serious management performance challenges facing their department or agency. And that report is uh, required to be a part of the agency's financial report each year. So we do this every year. Um, and this for us is a, within the Department of Defense Office of Inspector General is a guiding document. We use it to actually develop our oversight plan for for each year as well. So 140 projects we're looking forward to doing over the next year or so, and 140 projects we actually currently have ongoing related to these uh, management challenges. Uh, so, so with that, then I'll step back and talk a little more specifically about this challenge and how we came to it. Mm-hmm. Last year, we had a challenge on readiness, which focused on um, manning, training, and equipping. And that's the, really the real traditional kind of sense of readiness when it comes to the Department of Defense. We stepped back this year and started thinking more about readiness from a, a, more of a softer side, so to speak. And so we, we started thinking through what are the challenges that the service members and their families are in. And we've seen a lot of this in the media over the past year or so, anything from substance abuse, which is a problem uh, within the department, as well as society as a whole. Um, sexual assaults is obviously very prevalent. Housing has been something we've been seeing within the media. There's been congressional hearings on it uh, and, and substandard housings. And so we really just focused and we do a lot of research, um, both within uh, the work that we've been doing and oversighting. We look at GAO's work. We listen to congressional hearings. Uh, we read congressional, um, any kind of uh, legislation or associated reports. And then we, we also pay attention to the media and, and what, what people are talking about. Uh, we find that, uh, there, you know, that's a pretty good litmus for identifying what uh, the department's dealing with. Uh, and so we, we use that process to kind of hone in on specific areas. And so uh, I'd also say that Secretary Esper, in his uh, welcome ceremony this year, he made a commitment to have a particular focus on the well-being of our families, is how he said it. And uh, so we, we kind of 
we were already had actually decided upon this challenge before he came out and said that, but it really, for us, um, solidified the fact that this really is a challenge for the department and something that they should be and uh, are rightly so uh, focused on currently. And so let, let's hit on some of the specifics a little bit here. The first one you address in the report is substance abuse programs within DOD. And, and as you say, alcohol appears to be the most serious issue. Opiates and, and other, other drug abuse issues Service members are at, rates of abuse are actually lower than the general population, right? Uh, yes, for for opioids, they're they're lower than the general population. Um, however, with that being said, I think you know the jobs we're asking our service members to do. I, I think we have to really pay attention to things like opioid abuse, and uh, while the department's paying attention to it, I do think they have some challenges in that area. Particularly, there, the department is currently implementing uh, some controls to monitor opioid prescriptions as well as the doctors um, and facilities where those opioids are being prescribed out of or dispensed out of. Uh, one of the things we've seen saw in a recent audit, though, is that the information the department has in, in its databases where it maintains this patient information, it's inaccurate. And so while they're trying to identify trends uh, and key in on specific areas where or individuals or subscribers where they can go in and see if there actually is an issue with an over prescription, they're having trouble or they're going to have some trouble identifying those because the data they have in their systems is inaccurate and it's not consistent. And so um, within the the program, while the department's doing really good things to try and address it, I think that the data that they have to help them address it is, is a challenge for them right now. Moving on to, to sexual assault matters, uh, th this is an area where I, I, I don't think you can accuse the department of not paying attention to it. There are very well-staffed offices at the OSD level and in the military services to handle sexual assault prevention and response, and yet the rates over the past couple of years have been consistently going up. How does the OIG view this as, as a management challenge? What more could and, and should DOD be doing here? That, that's a that's a good question, and for us, it's uh, just because it's a challenge doesn't mean that the department isn't addressing it and isn't uh, you know moving forward, but. To your point, what more can they do? I'm, I'm not sure that we have a solid answer for what they can do or should be doing, but what, what our responsibility is to monitor what they say they're doing and to see if it is as effective as they think it is. And so, you know, to that end, we do oversight of anything from uh, holding the, how the department holds people accountable who have been found guilty of committing a sexual assault. Uh, and we also look at the services the department's providing to victims of sexual assault. And so, you know, one of the, one of the statistics I found really interesting when we were doing this, this report was that 45% of women and 65% of men who had reported being a victim of rape had a higher rate of post-traumatic stress disorder than those who had actually experienced combat. So, that would be like 45% of the women who had experienced rape, uh, rape um, reported rape, had also the same the symptoms for of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, whereas only 40% of the individuals who have been through combat. So it's it's not just the incident itself that the department has to uh, be concerned about or is a challenge. It's also then the follow-on treatment for for the the outcome. So it's accountability for the individuals who have actually, you know, perpetrated the assault, but then it's also caring for the individual uh, and their families. Another interesting thing is we recently did an audit of a sexual assault response at the U.S. Uh, Air Force Academy. And one of the things I found striking there is that uh, the majority of sexual assaults that were reported uh, within 
in the U.S. Air Force Academy for the time period we looked at actually occurred before the victim even joined the military. And so that's another thing that departments challenged to deal with. You know, these aren't just uh, sexual assaults that are occurring to our service members once they're in the military. Some of these, some of these things that are coming out, and I think it's partly because of the job the department's doing in educating people about the treatments that are available for sexual assault, that these things are coming out once they're in the military as well. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very complex issue. And so we're going to continue to look at the department's efforts, uh, you know, kind of seeing how they're doing and addressing it. Right now we have another review of sexual assault responses uh, at West Point. So we, we just try and stay on top of what they're doing to make sure that it's a, as effective, the programs they have in place are as effective as they intend them to be. And like sexual assault, rates of suicide have also been going up in the past couple of years, and that's another issue that you address in, in this section of the management challenges. And this appears to be another area where the department could be doing better with data. And, and I don't want to suggest that you can, you know, these are, these are all individual cases, and you can't, you can't explain every one with individual hard numbers. But at the same time, you guys have been recommending for years that DOD do things like establish event boards after a suicide to try to understand what's going on and try and establish some some trends to tackle the problem better, if I've got that right. Yeah, I think that's accurate. So one of the things we found is in, within their um, suicide case reporting system is that they, they don't always do, they have a lot of uh, entries in there as unknown or undetermined. And, and so what that doesn't allow them to do is actually look at the trends. So some of the things you want to know in that is like, what was uh, alcohol involved? Has the individual been being, was the individual previously treated for a uh, behavioral health condition? or if there are issues going on within the family. And so the only way you can get a full picture is to have a robust uh, group of individuals who have been involved with that uh, service member um, involved in the assessment of what the contributing factors were. And so, yeah, we've, we've made that recommendation. The department hasn't uh, fully acted on it yet. We're still seeing some, some uh, issues with the quality of their data that's that's being reported uh you know but to, to the department's credit this year in there they've started reporting not just on service member uh suicides but they've also been reporting on the uh rates of family member suicides which which gets back back to kind of the overarching theme of this challenge which is it's it's caring for the service members and their families you know it's a, it's a cohesive unit you can't have can't have a, a service member ready to go out and deploy uh and and do his or her job if they're worried about their family uh, back at home. All right, moving on to installations and housing, uh, and, and, and this is for sure, getting back to your point about some of these issues coming to your attention and the department's attention to the media, this is definitely one of those, especially because of the good work of, of Reuters, especially in this area. It's a complex topic, but I think what you would have to say about the entire issue is this, you know, one of the roots of the problem here is that when DOD privatized a lot of this in the mid to late 90s, they also stepped back from their oversight role in a, in a big, big way. Yeah, so we've actually been finding issues with military housing uh, and installations. We've been doing work on this back since at least as early as 2015, if not earlier, uh, both you know within the continental United States and uh, overseas. So we have a whole um, backdrop of support saying that the department hasn't consistently done good oversight of whether it be contractors doing construction um, or in the in the case of uh, base housing with the uh, privatized housing some of the I think some of the problems that came out or they've been exposed are the idea that a service member doesn't necessarily have recourse through its 
through his or her service. So the the services kind of said privatize the housing and then step back from the responsibility of ensuring that that housing was actually up to standard. And so when service members were bringing forward their concerns to the uh, to the management officials, they weren't always acting upon those. And then they were con continuing to be paid uh, the rent, which the department had paid, which was a direct stipend. The the service member and their families weren't seeing that that money, so they couldn't hold it back and, and kind of have any any uh, trigger to push the the management companies to do work. So I think the department's actually doing a fair amount to address this. I know that the the army's doing some reviews of what's going on within their uh, their base housing, um, but they've also started working on a, a privatized housing uh, bill of rights, which will help enable the service members and give them a little more control over how they share their concerns, and then also have some some recourse in terms of holding back funds from. Uh, the uh, housing providers. Um, the, the other thing I'll say is that there's we have ongoing work in this area as well. So GAO is doing a review right now of Conus housing, so inside the continental United States, we're looking at housing uh, at overseas installations to make sure that, you know, lead-based paint, radon, electrical and fire safety, those types of things. So this is something we're also aware of. And when we look at it, we don't look at just whether or not the, the facilities are safe. We also look at what is the department doing on a recurring basis to assess its own, uh, its own basing. So we go in and if we identify, say, issues with lead or, or um, fire and electrical safety issues, we then look back and say, well, what's, what has the department been doing to, to, to monitor that on a recurring basis? And then have they been identifying the issues? And if so, why haven't they been fixing them? Or if they're not monitoring it, why not? And then we try and make recommendations to help improve the department's own oversight so it doesn't take an outside entity coming in. They should be doing these things on their own. There are two other issues that we haven't gotten to yet, but but they're both family issues uh, rather than ones that, that relate directly and specifically to service members. And they're child care and spousal employment. T talk a bit about why those made uh, made the list here this year. Well, this gets back to the whole idea of readiness. If, if we have service members who are worried about what's going on at home and they're stressing over things like, how am I going to get m myself to work and my child uh, taken care of? Or, you know, with the constant moving that happens within the department, there's a financial aspect to that. And so these are about removing stressors from the service members so they can focus on their job. You know, we know none of us go to work every day and turn off what's going on at home. Uh, and for service members who are, you know, in certain circumstances on duty 24 hours a day, situations like knowing that their children are in a safe place where they're, where they're being cared for by responsible individuals at a, at a fair price, that, that's, that's really important. Or spousal employment, you know, every, about every three years, service members are moving and their families typically go with them. And, you know, they run into problems uh, on the spouse's side of continuing their own career goals while supporting our service members. So things like um, license transfers and, and uh, certifications between states can be an issue for them, or even just the perceived bias of why wanting not wanting to hire somebody um, who may be departing in a year to three years, you know. So those are challenges that the, the department um, has to deal with, that the service members themselves deal with on a regular basis. And I think the department's aware of them, and they have programs they're putting in place. You know, they've got, uh, while they have limited child care programs within within each installation, they are starting to do uh, reimbursements and paying fees towards child care for when someone is uh, assigned to a facility that doesn't have childcare uh, availability. So 
they, they've also got some stuff working right now in terms of, as I mentioned, the license and certifications transfers. They, they're, they're working on that very deliberately to try and get some reciprocity between states. So I, I think they're, they're important concerns. They're concerns that are never far from the service member's mind. And so I think that's why it's important for the department to focus on them and why we included them in the challenges this year. That's Brett Mansfield, Senior Advisor to the DOD Inspector General, as we discuss the new additions to this year's edition of the DOD IG's Top Management Challenges for the Defense Department. Short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss this year's other new edition, Supply Chain Management and Security. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servier. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation now on the Defense Department's top management challenges for 2020, according to the DOD Inspector General, there are two new additions to this year's list. We talked about service member and family issues before the break. The other new entry is on supply chain management and security. And Courtney Phones, the DOD IG's Program Director for Audit, joins us for that part of the conversation. Let me ask you a pretty similar question to where I started, Mr. Mansfield, which is, I mean, you guys have addressed supply chain issues in previous management challenge reports, usually in, in kind of the acquisition section. Why have you chosen to break it off into its own management challenge in the top 10 this year? Yeah, that's exactly right. In previous years, we discussed the supply chain challenges, a kind of a subset to some of our other issue areas, you know, in business transformation, or like you said, in acquisition and contract management. This year, we really wanted to shine a light on the supply chain and make it its own challenge Part of the reason for that is um, the focus on the supply chain and improving logistics in the national defense strategy that came out in 2018. And then also the DOD recently issued a report in September of 2018 where it did a big assessment of what are the strengths and uh, what is the supply chain resiliency in the United States? And that report really shined a light on some of the issues that DOD self-identified. And then our own work and the Government Accountability Office's work in looking at supply chain issues really has shown that there's some significant problems with how our supply chain um, operates. And, and that DOD report on the defense industrial base is kind of where you begin this section of your own report. Um, it, it, they, they found that there are just too many po- single points of failure in the supply chain, diminishing numbers of suppliers. Talk about some of the knock-on effects that come from that when you're down to a single source for a, a given part or service. Right. Um, You know, this often happens where we have limited sources of supply because our parts are so specialized. So they're uniquely manufactured and designed for the Department of Defense, and it is hard to get the rights to produce those items by alternative sources. So if you have something that is a sole source item, what can happen is the manufacturer will produce it for you when you need it, and then we don't give them a contract for a while, so they shut down their production line. When that happens and we ask the contractor, hey, we need more of this particular supply item. Can you start producing it again? That becomes more difficult for them to restart their supply line. And sometimes, um, as we've seen recently with budget cuts and then loss of contracts, the contractors simply cannot produce the item any longer. 
The other part of it that's a problem is when there are foreign sources that are the only way that we can get a supply that we need. That is a really big risk to the department, especially when the foreign source is a strategic competitor such as China. And China is a sole source um, for several critical materials that we use in our that the DoD uses in munitions and missiles. And even if there was an alternative source, that source is so expensive that the DOD won't purchase from them. Um, another piece of this is that when there is only one source, we end up paying uh, increased prices. So in a report that we issued this past year on Transdime, the DODIG reported that Transdime earned about $16 million more in profits than they should have for 46 parts that it sold to the department between January 2015 and January 2017. And I think you've probably heard about the testimony and hearings related to that topic. Um, the department was, uh, was lucky enough to receive some of those funds back from Transdime as a result of some of that testimony and hearings related to the topic. Um, and then there's, there's one more area that's a concern when there's limited sources of supply, and that's back orders. When we can't get the parts we need, what ends up happening is the department will have a very long backlog of what it needs to meet its needs. And to mitigate that problem, sometimes the department will result to cannibalization. Basically, that's where a service member would take a part from a working aircraft, move it on to a non-working aircraft and replace it so that aircraft can be up and running. That helps the DOD maintain readiness, but it also can cause risk to the part breaking when it's removed and then reinstalled. We recently issued a report on the F-18 Super Hornet where we discuss cannibalization and spare part backlogs. That F-18 report, I was actually just going to bring it up because it, it really gets to this point. One of, the, one of the factors that you guys pointed to in that report is that the Navy had not done an assessment of its supply chain for the F-18 for 18 years. So that really gets to the point of why this is a management issue. Yeah, those independent logistics assessments, those are very important for the department to say, okay, let's take a step back and look at what, what we really need and how we can forecast and plan for what we need in the future. One of the issues with that that we discuss both in this management challenge and in that report is is funding. Um, when there are frequent continuing resolutions, it makes it more difficult for the department to do long-term planning and to portion out its funds for important things like these, these independent logistics assessments where we could identify those things because they're trying to fill immediate needs to make sure that the warfighter is ready. Another issue you raise is the potential for, for fraudulent parts to get into the supply chain. To what extent do we know that that has happened, and, and what are the department's sort of monitoring mechanisms like to, to find out if it does? So there is a high volume of parts that come into the DOD supply chain that do not have a sufficient quality control process that happens to them when they arrive. And that's kind of the main problem is even when the part is identified as fraudulent, it comes so much later after the part was delivered that to, to take action against the entity who provided it becomes more difficult. Um, we recently issued a report on the Commercial and Government Entities Code System, which is a defense logistic, logistics agency system where contractors can go in and bid and provide parts to the Department of Defense. And through that report, we identified 
some issues with fraudulent supplies. And we also have ongoing investigations with our Defense Criminal Investigative Service, who's looking into that matter as well. And then to try and address this issue in the future, we have a planned evaluation to look at the Defense Logistics Agency's detection methods for identifying these kinds of parts before they enter the supply chain. You kind of alluded to a minute ago the fact that DOD tends to order large volumes of supplies so that it has big stocks. It, it doesn't operate a just-in-time operation in most cases. And and that, that also makes it, because of those large inventories, potentially hard to keep track of, of what it's got. So this issue of visibility and accountability, as you call it in the report, the department has, has been saying that it's been making a lot of progress here as a result of the ongoing financial audit process. And, and I, I wonder if, if you've seen some of that progress as far as them getting a better handle on what they've got in warehouses. Yeah, I would say that that's accurate. The department is working towards getting better at tracking its inventory, at knowing where its items are. There's still, of course, work to be done in that area, but I think the financial statement audits are a forcing function in some respects to getting that work done and ensuring that the DOD knows where its items are and what the useful life is left on those items and what their value is. You can't really have accurate financial statements unless you know where your items are and what the useful life and value is of those items. So that is something that the DOD is working towards. But as we've seen with our recent report on the F-35 program, when our team went out and tried to find what the DOD's records were for the government property that the contractor had related to the F-35 program, the DOD had no records. So essentially, the DOD is relying entirely on the contractor to tell them how many items they have and what the cost is. And for, in this specific case, the contractor said that it had about 3.5 million pieces of inventory, and the cost of those items was about $2.1 billion. Without any accurate records within the department, we can't verify whether that's accurate or not. And that's, a, that's an error then on our financial statements because those items should be accounted for in some way on our own books. I want to finish up with a supply chain issue that actually has gotten a lot of attention lately because DOD is right in the middle of kind of overhauling the way it approaches supply chain cybersecurity with the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. Since that is just on the horizon, it's probably hard to tell exactly how it's going to work and how it might change things. But as things stand now, what are some of the, the challenges the department has with cyber issues in the supply chain? So the cyber issues in the supply chain are partially related to some of the initial discussion points that I had related to foreign suppliers, where we might be able to only get items, information technology items from specific manufacturers who are the sole source for that item. You know, that becomes risky for the department. So they must do uh, supply chain risk management to make sure how are we reducing the risk to our supply chain when we do buy from those, those manufacturers. And a recent audit that the DODIG performed found that the DOD was purchasing commercial off-the-shelf information technology. And so what I mean by commercial off-the-shelf technology is something like a GoPro camera where there are known cybersecurity risks, yet the Army and the Air Force continued to purchase these items, knowing that there were some cybersecurity vulnerabilities, and they, they bought about $32 million worth of these types of items, knowing the risk. So 
the State Department had to step in, and in May 2017, they said, hey, they, these types of, there are certain types of equipment, such as video surveillance equipment, that are made by Chinese manufacturers, and the DOD shouldn't be purchasing those. Because the DOD continued to purchase those, Congress actually had to ban the government from purchasing those types of items back in August of 2018. And then the department has taken additional, well, Congress has taken additional action. In the National Defense Authorization Act for FY 2019, Congress put in a few stipulations to try and mitigate these issues with supply chain and information technology concerns. Uh, one is that they would like the department not to buy any telecommunications or video surveillance equipment or services from Chinese companies. And the other area is requiring the Department of Defense to develop a process to limit foreign access to technology to try and protect the DOD's information systems. That's Courtney Phones, the DOD IG's Program Director for Audit, talking with me about supply chain management and security, one of the two new additions to this year's top 10 list of management challenges in the Defense Department. Before that, Brett Mansfield, a senior advisor to the IG, joined us to talk about some of the service member and family well-being issues the OIG added to the list for the first time this year. Another break, and when we come back, how the Navy is partnering with the Energy Department to boost the energy resiliency of its bases. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serdin. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. The Energy Department's Federal Energy Management Program has thrived using a contracting approach that's relatively rare in the federal government, but when it's been used, it's led to major energy savings, and consequently major dollar savings. FEMP uses energy savings performance contracts to help the Defense Department and others save money and use less energy through a private financing model. Daniel Simmons is the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and Lucian Niemeyer is the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and environment. They talked with executive editor Jason Miller about how the partnership is leading to a more efficient Navy. One of the things that that the Federal Energy Management Program does is it helps federal agencies to understand how best to structure these contracts because they're not always easy to to structure. While the majority have been good, there have been some, you know, a problem from time to time. And so what what the Federal Energy Management Program does is it, it it is put together tools to help federal agencies structure these contracts in a way that makes the most sense for the federal taxpayer so that the federal taxpayer is uh, you know, as, as protected as possible so that it, it, it helps reduce costs for the federal government, but it also helps the, the federal agencies meet their, their goals and, and, and achieve their mission. And one of the ways that we do this is that uh, we do have a little bit of funding. It's not a lot of funding, but it's a little bit of funding to help federal agencies kind of like put them over the threshold to make some of these performance contracts uh, go. And uh, there's been um, billions of dollars in, in energy savings performance contracts in the past few years. So that's, th- that is an oppressive amount of, of energy savings overall. Let me bring in the Navy now, uh, Assistant Secretary Niemeyer. The Navy Department is a big user of these contracts. I went and looked into a little bit of research and found several uh, Navy bases that use these contracts or trying to take advantage of them. Talk about how these contracts, but other efforts are really building on installation, resiliency, efficiency. Walk me down that path a little bit. 
something that Dan brought up, which is really important, that is how we use taxpayer dollars most prudently and effectively. And uh, really, that's how we're looking at our energy program. We have a responsibility for national security, and I really want to thank Dan for his collaboration on, on really trying to work with us on meeting our national security needs. One of the things we know which is absolutely important is that um, as we look to the future, and this is borne out by the National Defense Strategy released in 2018, that we're going to need more power, more electricity in the future. If you look at emerging technologies, everything from robotics to autonomous vehicles to directed energy programs, we are looking, going to need more electricity at, at our installations and on the battlefield. Therefore, the work that Dan and his team does to work with us on efficiency initiatives means that we have more power, more electricity through those weapon systems. And that's kind of how we're looking at it. We have, a, we have much more of a national security focus. We do use ESPCs very, very uh, well, I think. We just uh, awarded the largest one in the federal government not too long ago to provide us a comprehensive series of energy resilient solutions uh, for our Navy base uh, down south on, at, uh, at Naval Base Guantanamo Bay. So that's just one example where we, we take advantage and we really partner up with DOE on those initiatives that will truly get us uh, to NAS security prerogatives, which is more efficiency for the future, as well as uh, being able to ensure we've got reliable, resilient, and effective power for us right now. And that really is the key for us is resilience. Um, You've seen what's happened recently with some of our great issues around the country. We are really laser-focused on ensuring resiliency you know, to power those our, our platforms, our bases that we need for the future. When you use the word resiliency, we all think of it as if something goes down, can the weapon system, can the base, can the whatever, the computer system stay up? But you also have to think about resiliency when it comes to other things besides you know, when something goes down. I mean, you have resiliency around people. You have resiliency around this idea of natural and man-made disasters. Walk me through a little bit about how you guys are kind of measuring resiliency and, and how does the energy play such a big role in that? I actually had the, the privilege of testifying before the House Armed Services Committee on installation resilience. And I would love if you would take a look at my opening statement for that hearing because I talk a lot about resilience across the board, not just in energy, but in those systems that support energy programs, such as grid grid resiliency, the resiliency of our control systems um, and our networks that actually support our electrical infrastructure around the country. There's a lot of information that I, that I prepared for the committee that goes to Department of Navy priorities on how we look at resilience. So it's not just being able to continue our critical missions when the power goes down, but it's ensuring that the power doesn't go down. And then when it does go down, we can, we can still use microgrids and other technologies that have been, we've been working with with FEMP on being able to direct that limited backup power to those most critical facilities on installation. So we've got about a five-prong approach, and oh my gosh, we're, we're working a whole series of initiatives on ultimately how do we get power to the most critical facilities regardless of what's going on with the commercial grid. And from the Department of Energy perspective, this is a, a very high priority for our, our Office of Electricity as well as our, um, our, our Office of, of Cybersecurity and Emergency Response, that it is critical that we have, from the Department of Energy's perspective, reliable energy to our defense critical infrastructure. Obviously, military bases are, are, are a part of that, and uh, that means thinking very, very critically and very holistically about our, our entire energy system. 
And you know, the, the, the added benefit of thinking about the resiliency of, of making sure that we have it for defense-critical infrastructure is that that means that the, the entire system as a whole is going to, to hopefully be more resilient. At least that is, that is our goal, to make sure that we have the power that we need uh, when we need it uh, and where we need it. That's Daniel Simmons, the Assistant Secretary in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, along with Lucian Niemeyer, the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environment. More of their conversation with Federal News Network's Jason Miller after one more break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. We're back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we return to the final few minutes of our conversation with Daniel Simmons, the Assistant Secretary of Energy in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, along with Lucian Niemeyer, the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and Environment. They talked with Federal News Network's Jason Miller about their partnership on energy savings performance contracts. Other agencies, not just the Defense Department or the Navy in this case, have these similar challenges. So can you walk me through some of the things you guys are doing to to address the resiliency challenge? We take resiliency uh, very, very seriously at the Department of Energy, and we look at ways to help other federal agencies increase their their resiliency with the Department of Energy in, in, in some ways that... Well, it's simple to talk about resiliency for these, uh, you know, for military bases. However, it's much more uh, difficult to actually execute on that. But it is particularly at, at other agencies also looking at using microgrids, using on-site generation, whether that is from wind or, or, or solar, as well as from fossil fuel with, with oil and natural gas, to make sure that the facilities that need to have that electricity are going to have it uh, when, when they do. So it is it is looking at renewables and fossil fuel assets, as well as uh, energy storage. Um, everything that we can do to to increase the uh, the resiliency of these of uh, of these uh, of this federal infrastructure. Hey Dan, can I give you my perspective to some of the great sure. work I think you sure. do? Uh, I mean, first of all, the, one of the most important things, and you mentioned it early on, Jason, was the energy exchange. You know, here we bring in every federal agency in, in the government, and we bring them together for three days, and we're able to, sh- uh, under under FEMS leadership, create some uh, tracks here that allows us to partner up with DHS, allows us to partner up with with uh, with other agencies and the VA, and share lessons learned on where we're ultimately applying those resiliency challenges. As you know, the VA has unique challenges. You know. If the if the power goes out, or if they have concerns with their power supply, and that's a critical, those are critical assets in the VA. Um, so they really want to partner up with us to see what we're doing to get that resilient power efficiently. And FEMP just does an amazing job of allowing us to come together, share lessons, um, and you know, share good ideas, and actually in some cases even work together on collaborative initiatives. So I, I can't say enough about the, the work that FEMP does on taking those lessons learned. We learn a lot from some of the innovations and some of the other things that we can apply to the Department of Defense, and that's all under FEMP's leadership. From the perspective of the Department of Energy, um, the, the Federal Energy Management Program leads this uh, an, annual, an annual energy exchange conference. This most recent one we had uh, a, a 
uh, recently had 2,800 people that attended. You know, it, it offered 116 unique training sessions, 13 tracks, and 130,000 training hours. And so it's, it's great to hear from from Lucian's perspective, from the from the uh, Department of the Navy's perspective, that this is is valuable because like that is our goal. Our goal is to bring together people from all across the federal government to improve the energy efficiency, to improve the resiliency, uh, so that you know we are so that in the at, at the end that we as the federal government are doing a better job overall of, of accomplishing our mission uh, for the American people. You mentioned the, the conference, the training session that happened back in August. What, what's the biggest takeaway from your perspective, uh, Assistant Secretary Simmons? What, what should people know going forward about FEMP as you look into 2020 and beyond? For people in the federal government, uh, for anyone in the federal government that, that deals with energy, you know, it's, it's important to know that once the, the FEMP exists, it is a it is a smaller office. So, uh, but it is uh, the the office has a lot of uh, a lot of tools, a lot of training to help the entire federal government do a better job in terms of energy efficiency. And then, second, from outside the federal government, uh, it's it's important to understand uh, FEMP to. So that people can take the you know take the tools that we have around things such as energy savings performance contracting and adapt them to to their uses because there is a lot of tools and information that we have put together um, and it's it's our job as the federal government to share them as as widely as possible to uh, you know to to increase value overall. Yep, and, and from my perspective, moving forward, and this is a, a Secretary Niemeyer, One of the things that really makes it uh, beneficial for us is FEMP also collaborates with us. So as we're looking for uh, moving forward in 2020, they're reaching out to federal agencies to say, okay, what do you see as emerging trends? What are some of the things that we're going to need to incorporate in our tracks? Um, and I think that collaborative process is 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 really fantastic because it allows us to work together on, okay, here's what we think we need to highlight for maybe distinct and unique tracks um, that, for which we think will benefit to all federal agencies. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a continual, ongoing collaboration um, that um, builds up, and obviously, at the epitome when we actually see the exchange each year in August. Assistant Secretary Niemeyer, from your perspective, what are your priorities looking into 2020 for, for Navy bases when it comes to installations and, and getting to that efficiency and resiliency side? How much time do you have? I mean, uh, we've identified, and, and this really goes back to what I mentioned earlier with the national defense strategy, where where you know we realize that we are in contested domains, that what we see happening around the world um, with energy markets, with energy grids, and how adversaries can very easily manipulate those, we, we realize we have a a huge challenge in front of us in, in working with the Department of Energy to ensure that regardless of any actions that are taken by anybody, we have a resilient grid and we can still project uh, military power and protect our national security interests. Um, that really is my biggest challenge. The more we do today, the more of a deterrence we can put in place that makes it, makes it less likely that anybody will ever want to attack our grid uh, because of the fact it's resilient um, and we have a way of responding very quickly uh, without necessarily having any impact to us. So that's my immediate challenge moving forward to 2020 um, is to use every available energy fuel source and build that resilience as quickly as possible so we never actually have to have it tested. One of the focuses from the Navy over the last few years has been also on, on not just shore but also to sea. I'm not sure, if does that fall under your area? Do you guys do focus on uh, ensuring that the ships and the cruisers and the like have renewable fuel sources and 
use different types of fuel energy, or is that falling to somebody else? Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, there's a couple of terms you use there, and I just want to make sure, you know, I can give you an absolutely accurate answer. So you're, you're referring to what we call operational energy versus installation energy. Correct, so, correct. For instance, hybrid drives on destroyers, that's actually an, under another directorate within the Department of Navy looking at new technologies that will allow us um, to be able to conserve fuel on the open seas. Um, you mentioned renewables. That's kind of my area, although I have to tell you that we are, we are really agnostic to the fuel source. Yes, we understand there's a value um, to being able to draw power from renewable sources, but it's, it's circumstantial. I mean, where it makes sense, where it's economical, where it's effective, and we're going to pursue that. But we're really looking for what gives us the best advantage right now in either a tactical or operational environment. And we are looking at how does fuel play in it. As you know, uh, fuel has always been a concern you know, in contingencies. The fuel supplies, um, the convoys, the access to fuel, yes, that continues to be a, a concern shared both by my directorate and by other directors from the Department of Navy. Lucian Niemeyer is the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environment. He and Daniel Simmons, the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, talked with our Jason Miller about their partnership on energy savings performance contracts. You can hear the full conversation at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, two guests from the DOD Inspector General's Office joined us to talk about this year's additions to DOD's Top 10 Management Challenges. If you missed that, you can hear this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD or in our podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, Ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.